Well, good morning, and uh, what a joy it is indeed to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, we still continue looking at First John, but I'm also glad to announce to you that we will be coming back together again as the church. We will be gathering physically uh, from the first week of September, the 6th of September. We had a meeting during the week with the leaders of the church and um, saw it fit that um, the 6th of September would be um, a good day to once again start meeting together. It's been a while. It's been five months since we've been apart as the church, um, and so we are glad that we will be seeing each other once again, and may God um, truly um, ignite in our hearts a, a desire to gather once again. May that five months function not as a way of telling us that church is no longer irrele- relevant, uh, where we can just stay at home, but may it drive us to see how essential the gathering of the saints is, um, how essential meeting together, fellowshipping together, worshipping together, he- hearing the word of God together, confessing sin together, how essential that is to our spiritual lives and growth. <coughs> Excuse me. As I said, we are looking at First John, and today we are in chapter 2, verse 28, um, to chapter 3, verse 10. So we'll be looking at these 12 verses, chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 10. And we're looking at this verses under the topic, True Children of God. True children of God. Let us open up in the word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, as we draw near to you this morning, we are thankful that we have your word, your voice that speaks to us clearly through your word. We pray that you help us, O Lord, to truly love and honor you, to exalt and glorify you as we hear your word, that your word will shape us, uh, your word will conform us in the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we will be reminded of what it is indeed to be a true child of God. May you be blessed, O God. Help me As I declare your word, give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray all this. Amen. I discovered something interesting this past week as I was um, going through Wikipedia. Um, I discovered something about Valentine's Day. You see, Valentine's Day began in the third century. Originally, it was a pagan fertility uh, festival known as Lupercalia. It really has nothing to do with what we do today, or at least I hope it it, it doesn't. Um, 
In that day, the man would sacrifice a couple of animals like a dog and a goat and then make their hides into whips. Uh, then the women would, would line up to be whipped by the men. Uh, they, they thought this ceremony would, would make them more fertile in the coming year. In the, fifth, in the fifth century, uh, Pope Galatius transformed this pagan holiday into a Christian feast day to celebrate Saint Valentine. Uh, see, Valentine was a priest during the reign of Emperor Claudius, and Claudius put a ban on marriage because he thought that marriage made men weaker, um, they, it made men weaker soldiers. But Father Valentine continued to perform weddings for young couples secretly. According to legend, when he found out Claudius had Saint Valentine executed on, 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 when, 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 um, when Claudius found out, he, he executed Saint Valentine on February 14th. By the, 15, by the 15th century, this feast had become a popular holiday in the UK and lovers began exchanging love notes on Valentine's Day. By the 1840s, capitalists began to mass-produce Valentine's Day cards and the rest, as they say, is history. When I began my research on Wikipedia... On Valentine's Day, the, the thing that interested me most was the connection between Valentine's Day and Cupid. It, it, see, in ancient mythology, Cupid is the god of love. So as Valentine's Day became the day of love, Cupid became an iconic figure associated with it. Cupid's name means desire. Uh, according to mythology, when a person is struck by one of Cupid's golden arrows, they are filled with an uncontrollable desire for another person. But what you may not know is that Cupid had two types of arrows in his quiver. In addition to his arrows of gold, he, he also had arrows of lead. And if a person was struck by one of Cupid's lead-tipped arrows, they would be filled with a different kind of desire, a desire to flee from a person, an aversion to that person. I found this interesting because it paints a picture of something critical in our passage this morning. That the love of God is marvelous. And when our hearts are struck with the golden arrow of God's love, it fills us with an unquenchable desire to love God in return. And that love will show itself not in giving flowers to God, but in righteousness or obedience. But if our hearts are struck with the, uh, if our hearts aren't struck with the love of God, there will be no love for God. Those who don't know the love of God are like those who, 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 with an arrow of lead in their hearts. Instead of loving God, they run from God. They have an aversion toward God. And this is really at the heart of our passage this morning. The question is, do you have a heart that is filled with a desire for God or in a heart that is filled with an aversion toward God and His ways? 
Are you a child of God who has come to know the love of God? And does the love of God produce a love for God that shows itself in righteousness? Turn your Bibles again in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10. I read from the ESV. This is what the Word of God says. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You, you know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not abide uh, whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The main question before us this morning as we look at this passage is who are the children of God? And, 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 and how do you distinguish true Christians from false ones? In our study first, John, we've been asking the question, am I really a Christian? And we've learned that the, 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 the answer, to answer this question, we must examine ourselves with, with three tests. We must first examine ourselves with a theological test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? We must use the social test. Does your trust in Christ result in a transformed love? The moral test. Does your trust in Christ result in a transformed life? Our text this morning deals with the moral test. How do you know you're a child of God? How do you know that you're born of God? The, the, the overwhelming answer of our passage is that you'll know you're a child of God if you practice righteousness. And this is my sermon in one sentence. The children of God practice Righteousness. They will practice righteousness. And this is the main point of the passage. We are told explicitly in verse 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. In verse 6 of chapter 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one 
who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this. It is evident who are the children of God and who and who the children of the who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The the children of God are those who practice righteousness. In our passage, this is the distinguishing mark between the true children, the, the true Christians and, and false ones. But our text does not tell us the children of, does not tell us the children of God are those who does more than tell us that the children of God are those who practice righteousness. Our text answers two questions. The first question is that what motivates righteousness in the children of God? And we see that in verse twenty eight of chapter two to, 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 to chapter three, verse three. And the second question that we want to ask this morning is what produces righteousness in the children of God? We see that in verse 4 of chapter 3 to verse 10. I'd like to spend our time this morning answering these two questions. First, what motivates the children of God? Uh, what may motivates righteousness in the children of God? And here's the answer. The children of God have hope. The children of God have hope. We see that in chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 3. That the children of God have hope in two things. First of all, they have hope in, in judgment. They, 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 when Christ appears in judgment, the, the children of God can have confidence. They, they don't shrink from Christ in shame at His coming. The, the, the reason they don't have to be ashamed is because they are righteous. The first place we see people shrinking in shame is in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Adam and Eve sinned and they became aware of their nakedness. So they hid from God. But those of us who are in Christ have been clothed. Right? We are told two times in our passage that Christ is Righteous in verse 29 of chapter 2 and verse 7 of chapter 3. But those who are bad in Christ are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, when judgment comes, God will look at us and see righteousness of Christ instead of our sinful filthiness. Therefore, we can have confidence at the coming judgment because we are righteous in Christ. Not only do we have hope in judgment, but we also have hope for glorification. The second thing that we have is hope and glorification. Glorification is the third stage of our, the, 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 the conclusion of our salvation, isn't it? That when we are in heaven, when we are in heaven, when we have glorified bodies, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it is one of the most loved verses in the Bible. See what kind of love the Father has loved us, has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I preached a message previously <clears throat> on 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. You can go to our website to um, listen to that message. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 12, 
we are told that all of those who receive Christ by faith are children of God. Those who believe the gospel have been born of God, born again. In other words, we are in God's family because of the love of God that has been bestowed upon us. But not only do we belong to God, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see, the children of God are those who practice righteousness. But as we'll see in this life, we do so imperfectly. But when Christ returns, we will be fully righteous. We will be like him. As we struggle in this life to practice righteousness, we do so with the hope that one day we will truly be like him. Uh, this is what the Bible calls glorification, right? That in this world, we do struggle with sin. We do struggle with the presence of sin. Though we are saved from the power and guilt of sin, we are, we are struggling still with the presence and the, 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 the presence of sin in, in our lives. But when we, when we are glorified, when we go to heaven, and 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 meet Christ we will truly truly be like him with no sin though our righteousness in this world doesn't look like that of Christ we are confident that God continues to mold us and and fashion us into the likeness of his son the image that comes to mind is the image of a sculptor who already has the picture in his mind of what he is fashioning, right? Of what he's fashioning. When you look at what the sculptor is doing, it might not be because it, it, you might not see what he's doing, but in his mind, already he has the finished product in his mind. It is what God is doing. God is molding us, he's fashioning us in the likeness of his son. And though now we are not like him, he continues to do so and fashion us. And then one day, actually on the day when he appears, we will be like him. And this is the hope that we have in Christ. And this hope actually motivates us to practice righteousness. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One of the indications that you are hoping in Christ, one of the indication that your hope is firmly fixed in Christ will be reflected in the fact that you are seeking to live a holy life. A righteous life, a purified life before God. One of the keys to growth in the Christian life is having an eternal perspective. Keeping our eyes fixed on the last day informs how we live today. Our motivation to practice righteousness comes from the, the hope we have as children of God. Now we saw the first question is what motivates righteousness in the children of God. <clears throat> and the answer is that 
the children of God have hope. The children of God have hope. Now the second question I want us to concern ourselves with this morning is what fuels or produces our practice of righteousness? What fuels or produces our, 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 our practice of righteousness? And this is the answer to, to the question. The simple answer. It is this. It, the children of God abide in Christ. The children of God abide in Christ. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 4 to 10. In the beginning of our passage, we are commanded to abide in Christ in verse 28. And as we saw last week, this means that we are to remain in communion with Christ through remaining in the gospel. Children of God are to abide in Christ. But we are also told in verse 6 and verse 9 that Christ does abide in the children of God now. And because Christ abides in us now, we won't keep on sinning. On the flip side of that coin, if Christ abides in us now, we will practice righteousness. That's what produces righteousness in the children of God. My guess is that this sermon series has made some of you a little uncomfortable. Some of you might probably be thinking that this sounds like legalism. You may be wondering if, if, if I'm saying um, that good works save you. Well, well, let me start by emphasizing that our good works don't save us. Right? Our good works don't make us secure. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from all sin. It is the work of Christ that secures our salvation. But the salvation that comes from Christ will produce good works. As the reformers say, that salvation is by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. You see, legalism is when you believe that your works are what earns you favor with God. John is saying something different here. And I'm saying something different. John is saying that Christ's work is what ends us God's favor. In chapter 2, verse 2, we are told that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, Christ's perfect life and death serves as a substitute for us. And Christ's perfect life and perfect death are what ends us God's favor. The word propitiation means to make God favorable to us. It is to Christ bears the full wrath of God. And God, with his wrath fully satisfied, looks at us with favor. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the perfect sacrifice of his son on the cross. And our good works will flow out of God's favor. And they will be evidence of our salvation. So our security comes from the work of God in Christ. 
But the evidence of our salvation is linked to our good works. Therefore, our good works are part of our assurance of salvation. And they don't secure salvation, but they show the evidence of salvation. Therefore, they can assure us of salvation. Our salvation produces fruit. That's what we learn in First John when we look at verse 7 here. Verse 7 says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as God is righteous. Those who are made righteous by Jesus Christ, the righteous one, will practice righteousness. That the root of who we are produces the fruit of what we do. I hope you understood that and heard that. The root of who we are produces the fruit of what we do. Children of God will practice righteousness because Christ abides in them. And children of God will not, produ- will not, will not produce sinful, sinfulness before God's seed uh, because God's seed abides in them. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in them, in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Do you see the parallel argument that is being used here? The, the, the seed being spoken of at the heart of this verse is the seed of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes a person born again, a child of God. And because the seed of the Holy Spirit continues to abide in the child of God, they cannot keep on sinning. The root of, gener- of regeneration produces the fruit of righteousness. Those who are born of God will continue to walk with God. They will obey his commands and they will love other believers. But if you are a careful reader of the Bible, you, are, you would have noticed already that there seems to be an apparent contradiction here. We, 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 we run into a problem because we all continue to sin, don't we? So does that mean that none of us are really Christians? There's an apparent contradiction in First John. In chapter 1, we are told, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When you look at verse 8, we all sin. And we are told that we need to confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, verse 9. But then in chapter 3, we are told that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And you look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Well, which is it? Do true Christians continue to sin or do true Christians not continue to sin? I think it is plain. It is plain that true Christians continue to sin. So what then does John mean when he says that children of God cannot keep on sinning? I think it has to do with what kind of sin John is talking about in chapter 3. We all continue to sin, but there's a certain kind of sin that proves that people are not children of God. 
if there's a certain kind of sin that proves that people are children of the devil, what is it? There have been a number of answers given to this question. And to be honest, none of them are completely satisfying. But I want to list two views that find that I find more plausible, more convincing. First of all, the most common view is that John is talking about habitual sin in chapter 3, verse 10. And according to this view, true Christians will continue to sin occasionally, but they won't make a habit of sinning. But those who make a habit of sinning prove that they are not a child of God. That they prove that they are a child of the devil. They won't continue in the same old sins over and over again with no progress. This is the view I held before I studied this passage. And I think it is an acceptable view. This view is based on looking at the present tense of the verse in, uh, of the verse in, in verse, in, in verse For we are told that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. In verse 6, we are told no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. So according to this view, the present tense of the verbs refers to ongoing habitual sin. This view is very attractive, right? If a person that shows no fruit or no change in their lives, they they cannot have assurance of salvation. And it is true, right? But there's a challenge with this view in terms of this text. The tense of the verbs alone cannot tell us the habitual sin of an unbeliever in verse uh, in, in view here. And if you turn over to chapter 5 verse 16, you see that this same present tense verb is being used to describe a believer. It says if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, in other words, makes a practice of sinning, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Uh, This verb is clearly referring to a true believer, a a brother in Christ. Yet yet this verse says this brother is committing a sin. Uh, This is the same verb in the same tense as we see in chapter 3 translated as makes a practice of sinning. That's why I no longer think that the sin that a true believer cannot commit is referring to habitual sin. But it is the most common view. There's another view, though, which I find more plausible. This view states that the sin a child of God cannot commit is the sin of rebellion. In verse 4, we told that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, the question is, what is lawlessness? That may give us a clue as to what kind of sin a child of God cannot commit. Lawlessness is probably not the best translation here. That the Greek word translated lawlessness can refer to satanic associations. It can refer to an opposition to God. It can refer to a sinful power at work in the world that Christians should not submit to. 
So the word, which is here translated as lawlessness, doesn't refer to breaking the law or ongoing acts of committing sins. It refers to a disposition which is against God. It refers to an inward reality. The, the, the sin spoken of here is a sin that flows out of your heart that is cold towards God and his ways. It refers to iniquity. It refers to rebellion. It is ultimately the sin of rejecting Christ. And this sin of rebellion produces all kinds of sin. The, the sin of rebellion is the root problem here. The root rebellion produces the fruits of sin. The root of rebellion produces the fruit of sin, the kind of sin that cannot be true of true believers. And this matches what we see in the rest of the passage. In our passage, there is an intimate connection between what's inside of us and what comes out of us, or between who we are and what we do. In verse 3, we are told, everyone who hopes in Christ, that is internal, produces, uh, uh, purifies himself, that is external. In verse 6, no one who abides in Christ, that is internal, keeps on sinning, that is external. No one who keeps on sinning, that is external, has either seen Christ or known him internal. Verse 7, whoever practices righteousness, that is external, he is, is righteous as Christ is righteous, that is internal. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning external is of the devil internal. The external behavior results from an internal rebellion against God, just like the devil who has been sinning or rebelling from the beginning. In verse 9, we are told no one born of God internal makes a practice of sinning external. In verse 10, whoever makes Whoever does not practice righteousness external is not from God internal. So in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning external also practices lawlessness. And that is out, that is inward rebellion. The, 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 the one whose heart is inwardly rebellious toward God produces a kind of sin that a child of God cannot commit. It's like we've, we, we said when we began the one who has been stuck by the golden arrow of God's love will in turn show a love for God. In the nature of that love, the nature of that love will be consistent with who he or she is. It will be righteous. But the one who practices sinning shows that he has a, full, he has a heart full of lead. There's a heart that is an aversion toward God, a heart that flees from God and his ways. The, 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 the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, isn't it? So the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Has your heart been love-struck? If you, have been lo- if you have been struck by the love of God truly, it will produce a love for God. And a love for God will always show itself. You will desire to do his will. You will desire to do his will. Has your heart been struck by the love of God? Or is your heart full of lead? We will all continue to sin. But when you sin, what's going on in your heart? Do you hate sin and love Christ? Or do you really love sin and rebel against Christ? 
You see, the children of God practice righteousness. That the root of regeneration will produce the fruit of righteousness. Not rebellion. And there will be evidence of this fruit. It won't be perfect now. But there will be evidence of righteousness now as we wait for Christ's return. Part of the evidence will actually be a love of righteousness and a love of the righteous one. But if your love, if your, if, 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 if your life doesn't bear fruit, what should you do? Well, trust Christ. Trust Christ. Put your uh, trust in Christ. Throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. As the children of God will practice righteousness. So if you're not practicing righteousness, it is an indication that you are not a child of God. But there's the good news this morning. If you trust in Christ, you're the one who shared, the, 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 he's the one who shared his blood for your unrighteousness. Then God has given you the right to become a child of God. Children not born of human decision or, or the will of man, but born of God. You see, all who are children of God will bear fruit. To receive Christ and to become a child of God, that is the answer. You look to Christ to be the child of God. Our love for God must flow out of receiving the love of God in Christ. We love because he first loved us. Let me pray for you as you consider what God's word says. And if you are listening, watching, and you do not know the love of God, or you live a life of rebellion against God, I want to invite you this morning to put your trust in him, to draw near to him. The, the promise of the Bible is that when we draw near to Christ, when we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. God never turns anyone back. It, it doesn't matter the kind of sin that you have committed. God receives all who come to Him with broken hearts. With a broken and contrite heart, God is pleased and He welcomes us to Himself. He welcomes you today. He is calling you today. I want you to trust Him with your life. I want you to place your faith in Him. I want you to throw yourself at the mercy of God. And may God show you His love. His love that He has displayed. His, His amazing love. Let us pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you that your word is clear. As you say that you know your children. And those who name the name of the Lord must refrain from practicing unrighteousness. As we draw near to you this morning, we pray, Lord, that you draw our hearts to yourself. You give us a desire to walk in a way that pleases you. Lord, I want to pray for those who do not know you, for those who have a false hope but are not truly saved. I want to pray for them. I want to 
um, commit them into your hands. I want you to draw them to yourself, Lord, to show them your love in Christ. May they come to truly know this joy of being your child. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray all this. Amen.